Lord, we believe that you are the only one that deserves uh, the glory and the fame and the credit for our salvation. Uh, you are God and we are not. Uh, you are God and there is no one like you, uh, no one else deserving of our praise, our affection. And so in some way in our time together, I pray that you'd reorient our hearts toward you, um, loosen our grip on the things of this world, that we might long um, for the things of heaven. Uh, would the things of this world become less, that you might become more. And I pray that you'd remind us of the, the supernatural uh, nature of grace, that you have forgiven us um, by a, a gaze of faith at the cross, the only place that we know, the only blood that was shed that we know that can, um, that can provide forgiveness of sin. And so uh, we thank you that in Jesus this morning we stand, uh, we stand forgiven, we stand stable and secure. And we will stand that way until the end because those whom you save, you will keep until the end. And we thank you for that. I pray that you'd encourage us where we are discouraged this morning. Uh, give us wisdom and clarity where we are confused. And I pray, God, the Spirit, that you'd make your word come alive to our hearts that we would follow you more fully and faithfully and joyfully as a result of being together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go and have a seat. <clears throat> Grab your Bibles. You can open to the book of Acts. We'll be in chapter 5. Good to see everybody. Hope you're doing well. My name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're joining us online, we're grateful to have you as well. And we're going to continue our journey through the book of Acts in chapter 5. You can go to Acts chapter 5. We'll, we'll read verse 12 through 16 here in just a moment. And then we're actually going to read the entirety of the rest of the chapter before we're done. <clears throat> uh, I was reading a story this morning actually from the Voice of the Martyrs magazine uh, about a, uh, a Christian in Ni Nigeria, a single mom. And her real simple statement in the article uh, just kind of stirred me, and I think it's relevant for the section of Scripture we'll look at this morning. But if you can kind of just for a moment allow me to explain her context. She's a single mother of four sons and lived in a village in Nigeria that was attacked by uh, Islamist extremists and pushed her and her family out. And in a moment of attack, she had to run back to get her children, uh, passing all the while, beheaded bodies and and carnage from Christians who were killed because of their faith in Jesus. And so she fled to the mountains, kind of up the hill from where she lived with her sons where they lived for a couple of years. <clears throat> and one statement she made is just so, so remarkably humbling. And she basically said this. She said, persecution on believers, persecution is God's word being fulfilled. That was her response to her situation and her suffering, was to look at it and say, this is the, actually the fulfillment of God's word. And so the story we're going to look at this morning is another wave of difficulty and persecution against the early church. We've already seen uh, another wave of that early on in the book of Acts. And <clears throat> for us as American Christians, um, we will likely, overwhelmingly likely, never face the type of persecution that this woman faced in Nigeria. And that thousands upon thousands, millions of our brothers and sisters across the world are facing even this morning. Um, but no less, this story is instructional for us because the call is to be bold and faithful, to be those who are, who are imprisoned, beaten, but yet bold and joyful. And so whether that is imprisonment or whether it's just uh, dying to a lack of social comfort, maybe loss of friendships, uh, whatever it may be in our context, then the call is still the same to, to go about joyfully entering into the call to suffer for the name of Jesus. And so in Acts chapter 5, where we're going to read in verse 12, right before this, if you weren't with us last week, if you, 
if you were, then you can just bear with me for a second. So we just came off a story that arguably is one of the most disturbing stories in all the New Testament. So you have a, a married couple, Ananias and Sapphira, that kind of serve a little bit like uh, an example of, a, of an attack from within the early church. So they were compromising. This, the picture is that everybody was being extremely generous in the local church. People were selling homes and land and giving the proceeds to the apostles to distribute to meet the needs of the people. And Ananias and Sapphira kind of stand as an example against the general theme of the early church in this way. They sold property as well. But what they did is they brought the proceeds to the apostles, wanting to look as if they were giving it all, but actually withholding some for themselves. So the issue wasn't that they took some of the proceeds from the sale. The issue is that they, they wanted to, to hold back from God while appearing, trying to appear holy. They, they were hypocritical. They were compromising in the midst of what was a legitimate um, sacrifice they held back. And I think the challenge for us is to look at, in our own lives, other ways in which we're holding back while trying to appear holy. And so what happens is that God deals swiftly and severely with their sin. Um, both of them die as a result in, in a moment. And fear strikes the heart of the church in such a way that the, the church even more so grows. And we'll see in just a moment that on the heels of this, that we shouldn't be surprised and the purity of the church is preserved, that the supernatural power of God is displayed really right on the heels of it. And so to the extent that we can be also purified as those pursuing Christ so heartily, I think we, we should anticipate that the power of God and the work of God will be more clearly seen in us and in our church body as we, we seek to serve him. Let's read verses 12 through 16, then we'll pause for a minute before we read the rest of the chapter. So Acts chapter 5, verse 12 says this. This is God's word. It says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, which is part of the temple. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So God was working many signs and wonders substantially at the hands of the apostles, the people being healed, and so significant was the supernatural influence of God on this group that some even clamored just to get in Peter's shadow thinking that that would heal. There's no indication that actually healed people, but we do see is that even the gospel begins to kind of push out of Jerusalem for the first time, kind of in fulfillment of you're going to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and there and everywhere. So this is the first time it kind of pushes outside the city limit of Jerusalem because the towns surrounding Jerusalem, all the unclean spirits and those who were sick were brought into Jerusalem to get near enough to the apostles to be healed. And in fact, that's what happened. And more than ever, people were added to the Lord, not just to the organization of the church, but to Christ. They were coming to faith, multitudes of men and women. This is a substantial work of God, but not everyone was embracing the work that God was doing. So the usual suspects, the religious leaders, are about to come against the same work in a forceful way. And as Luke often does in the book of Acts, what seems to happen a lot of times is Luke will kind of dive in to look at the internal workings of the church by itself, 
kind of like Acts 2, that here's what they were doing. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, and they were being generous with each other. And then there's other moments where he'll kind of flip, and he'll take a look at here's how the church was being treated in the context it was living in. And so verse, um, verse 17 that we're going to start reading kind of represents one of those changes where he's going to look at here's how the context was treating the church. And so let's jump into verse, verse 17. 17. We're actually going to read the rest of the chapter. It's a little bit longer section. But we're going to do that because it's one cohesive story and it benefits us to read it just all together. But here's what it says, starting in verse 17. It says, but, so in contrast to all those who are coming to be healed and, and embracing the work of God through the apostles, in contrast to them, the high priest rose up and all who were with him that is the party of the Sadducees. And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching 
that the Christ is Jesus. All right. It's a pretty, pretty big section, pretty big chunk to bite off. So let's go back to verse 17. So, so once again, like in chapter 4, we see the high priest, kind of the, the ringleader of sorts of this religious squad, this moral mob come against the church, strongly opposing the work of the apostles. And it, it tells us here that kind of gives us a glimpse into the heart of this group, that they were filled with jealousy. And they not only arrested Peter and John like they did the first time, they arrested all of the apostles and put them in prison. So as we understand, like, jealousy, it's this picture of zeal. So you can have a right jealousy over something. So we just had some birthdays in our home. So if one of our daughters gets a toy at a birthday party, it's new to her, and one of her friends tries to grab it to play with right away, we'll be like, no, it's okay. It's rightfully hers, at least for the moment. She's going to play with it now. Or maybe a more appropriate example would be like Jesus. Jesus goes into the temple. He sees that people have set it up like a place of business. What does he do? He flips tables. He takes a whip of cords and clears it out says, you made my father's house a place of business. It's no longer a prayer, a house of prayer for the nations. That type of zeal can be a God-honoring thing. We're trying to preserve the glory that God deserves. But that's not what's happening here. Because these religious leaders were filled with a zeal that was, was fueled by their desire to want to preserve their notoriety in society, their position of influence and prestige. They wanted to preserve their reputation. And that was the jealousy that flowed out of them. So they sought to put these guys to rest, to put them in prison, to shut them up. And I think it's good for us to observe here that the gospel, like the Jesus Christ, hear me on this, like is a threat to any man or woman or child that would seek to maintain or preserve or build up honor for themselves. Make no mistake about it. The gospel, Jesus Christ, is a threat to anyone in that posture. Because we see in the Bible that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. That he will humble the, the exalted but exalt the humble. That's his promise. That's the way that he operates. And so there's no surprise that God is opposed to the work of these men. And so in verse 18 through 20, on the heels of the first wave of persecution, you might remember the church, after Peter and John were released, they go back to their friends. You remember that part? They go back to their friends and they gather for a prayer meeting and they acknowledge that God is sovereign. He's working in this situation. And they as well pray that God would, would do one specific thing. Well, two specific, really. Grant them boldness and extend his hand to continue to do miracles. They said, grant to your servants boldness to continue to speak your word while you continue to stretch out your hand. So it's no surprise what happens now is God does just that. He stretches out his hand with this servant angel who comes and frees the apostles from prison. It's such a sweet picture. You might remember this a few weeks ago. So the Apostle Paul, so Saul of Tarsus, who comes to faith, becomes the Apostle Paul, writes 13 letters in the New Testament. He's in prison. He gets executed in Rome at the end of his life. In 2 Timothy, he talks about his imprisonment. He's like, hey, pray for me. I'm in chains. But then he gives this encouragement. But just remember this, the word of God is never in chains. I might be bound up, but the word of God is never bound up. And it's almost like the apostles are like this living, breathing picture of that promise. That the religious leaders might hold them for a moment, but you can never hold the preachers down, right? You never hold the word of God in because God is going to accomplish his purposes for his namesake and for his church. And just as soon as the prison doors were open, the apostles were instructed to, to do what? Look back at the, the text. The angel gives them instructions in verse 20. 
He says, go. I'm giving you freedom, and I want you to go. I want you to stand, and I want you to speak about this life. Go, stand, and speak. And notice that God didn't send the angel to preach for the apostles. He didn't say, okay, I need to put someone else in their position. Charles Spurgeon kind of comments on it this way. He says the angel didn't preach. He set loose the preachers. Now, why is that important? Is because in the context of God's story from beginning to end, if you're a Christian, you're the preacher. You're the one whom God has sent. I'm the one whom God has sent to be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus, to make him known, to make his glory resound throughout our context, throughout the world, that many more, that multitudes more would come to know him, to speak of this life, this life that Jesus is. He's the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. He's the bread of life, and anyone who eats of him will never be hungry again. Go speak about this life, speaking about Jesus himself. So with the locked jail behind him, you can imagine a little bit if you're the apostles, you're in jail, the angel comes, there's really not a lot of detail as to what happened. Did the guards become paralyzed or zombies for a minute, and they just kind of walked out? Were the apostles invisible supernaturally? There's they just kind of walk out. Everything's the same behind them, except they're not in the jail. You kind of wonder what kind of peculiar joy it would have given them. So I'm assuming everybody in this room has probably played hide-and-seek before. I'm tempted to have you raise your hand if you have not played hide-and-seek, just to zero you out. But there's a, there's a unique joy when you're playing hide-and-seek to have that spot where just like for minutes on end, no one can find you. You're like, they're clamoring, they're looking, they're flipping over tables. Like, they can't find me. This is a perfect spot. You just wonder if there's something of this, the joy of the Lord that God gave the apostles. They look back and maybe heard some of the scurrying and confusion. They're like, we're not in there. We used to be in there. We're not anymore. And here we go. Off to, off to preach we go. This is hi-ho, right? So I want you to go. I want you to stand and I want you to speak. Just go out and, and do the very thing that God has called you to do. I'm, I'm allowing you to do it once more. So verses 21 through 33 is this picture of what happens next. So if you can just kind of put yourself in this setting, what happens is that the high priests, these religious men, this group are waking up to begin the day. And they're wiping the sleep out of their eyes. And guess who's already preaching in the temple? The apostles. Before the day even started, they go to the temple and they're already preaching Christ. They're talking about this life and these religious leaders are setting up their special meeting, trying to figure out how to keep them from teaching. Lo and behold, they're actually teaching at the same moment. And that's the, that's the picture that we get. The high priest and his boys, the council of leaders, gather together for a meeting, trying to figure out how do we keep these troublemakers at bay, keep them from teaching. But God isn't underneath their hand, right? Their intent on stopping the teaching is now spread through the whole city. They're having favor with everyone. They send for the prisoners, so they kind of set up this senate, this special meeting, kind of picture it. Annas, the high priest, in his robes, the special order of religious people, and they're like, okay, now go get these prisoners so we can question them. And lo and behold, they go, and they're not in prison. The guards are there. Everything's locked, but they're gone. And they come back. They tell the story. Hey, we went, and everything was in place except nobody was in there. Somebody else comes in. They're like, hey, look, the guys that you are trying to stop teaching, they're actually out teaching right now. They're in the temple preaching. 
what of it, right? And so they, they respond and the, this, this kind of temple guard marches into the setting, however many people it was, and they apprehend them, but they don't do it by force. Why? Well, the text said that they were fearful. The people were responding in such a way to the gospel that they were fearful if they came in and tried to, to forcefully grab the apostles that the people would stone them. You know what's also present here? You know what the, the apostles didn't do? They didn't yell at the crowds for help. It wasn't anything like, hey, are you gonna help us? Like, don't you, don't you hear the message we're giving you? Would you help us and intervene? Nothing of the sort. Just a quiet apprehension. They go on to be questioned by these religious leaders. So this, this momentary freedom they were fruitful in that brief experience of freedom. And as I was reading this this week, I had to ask myself the question, is like, are we, am I? We're not in prison, but just put yourself in a situation where you've been apprehensive to, to be bold for Christ, to speak about Jesus, to speak about this life. Are we equally as bold in the moments that God has given us freedom to speak, an opportunity to speak? Do we go? Do we move toward it? Like step into the moment? Like go, stand, and speak. The picture of standing is not over and again sitting. It's standing like stand firm, stand strong. Go, stand strong, and speak about this life. Give him away. This life is to be given away. It's not just for, for you. And I think we all stand again from some conviction there. Do I step forward with boldness to do what God has called me to do, to say what he's called me to say, to be who he's called me to be, to be a sent one, a witness for the, the glory of his name, for the spreading of the good news of Jesus? So this religious council and the high priest question the apostles. And they basically say this. <clears throat> As they encounter them, they bring them in. They, they say, hey, uh, we told you already not to speak in this name. It's back in chapter four. So kind of throwing us back to chapter four, they were threatened, Peter and John were, not to speak anymore in Jesus' name. So the high priest kind of harkens back to that moment. He's like, hey, we told you not to speak in this name. And here you are teaching everybody about Jesus, trying to put this man's blood on us. And notice how they kind of keep Jesus' name at a distance for the time being. They don't want to speak about Jesus. It's this name, this man, <clears throat> And what's interesting about this moment is that the very thing that they're trying to stay away from, that the blood of Jesus would be on them, they actually asked for in the Gospels when Jesus was being, right before he was crucified. So let me take you back there just for a second. So you might remember the story of how Pontius Pilate was questioning Jesus. And there was a moment in time where, where the Jews had the chance to get Barabbas, a murderer, instead of Jesus, or Jesus instead of Barabbas. They had the choice. And they screamed loudly crucify Jesus, give us Barabbas. In that exchange, what happens is Pontius Pilate says, I don't see any grounds to crucify Jesus. My, my hands are, are clean of his blood. He washes his hands symbolically and says, I'm washed of any guilt. And right on the heels of that, here's what the people say. All the people answered Pilate, his blood, Jesus's blood be on us and on our children. So the very thing that they invited and their eagerness to see Jesus crucified, now they're afraid of. And they're saying, hey, you're preaching this guy 
trying to bring his blood upon us. And in fact, that was justified because they were central to getting Jesus crucified. But notice what they don't talk about. They don't, they don't even talk about the miracle. There's, like, if you question these guys, like, I would say the first thing you're going to ask is, like, how did you get out of prison? We put you in there. The guards were still there. Everything was locked. Like, how did you get out? But there's no questioning about the miracle. There's no mention of angels or anything. And there's some real heavenly kind of irony in this. If you wonder if God has a sense of humor, it's all over this story. Why? Because the Sadducees, this group of like religious leaders, they don't believe in a couple of things, two of which are miracles and angels. And what did God accomplish in this story? Well, at the hands of an angel, he accomplished a miracle. But they didn't want to hear it. Why? Because it collided with their beliefs. It deconstructed their ambitions and their philosophy. So there was no room for them to, to talk about miracles. And the, the apostles respond with just pure boldness and basically say this, like, yeah, we remember, like, we remember actually the threats that you told us just some days ago. Like, we remember what you said. You told us not to speak about Jesus. But we decided actually we're going we're gonna to obey God rather than obey men. That's what we decided to do. And we saw that earlier in the chapter, and, and it's really this picture, I think, for us as we think about just boldness in the moments where we face, even if it's just subtle resistance or persecution, obedience should be the response. Like, that is really the, the thing that pushes us through our desire to want to shrink back is like, this is out of obedience to God, out of love for God and obedience to Him. Now, most of us have probably had the experience of jumping in the waves at the ocean, some of us more than others. Um, but you probably, if you, if you played in the waves before, you know if a big wave comes, there's a moment in time where you have like a split second decision. I'm either going to cut through this wave by diving into it or I'm just, it's just going to dominate me. It's going to crush me, swirl me, like some skin's going to be lost because I'm going to get in the sand. I'm going to come up looking disoriented and disheveled. It's going to be terrible, right? So you've had that experience. So just imagine for a second that that wave where you have the decision to make is resistance. It's opposition, maybe even persecution. The picture here I would submit is a little bit like this. Kent used use this picture in his commentary on Acts. It's like the, 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 the movement of obedience is like that choice to dive into the wave. It still hits you. It still comes over you. But if you've, if you've done that before, what happens on the backside? There's this kind of joyful buoyancy. You kind of come up out of the wave alive, still wet, still affected by the wave, but able to continue on to kind of journey into deeper water, to use that picture. I think it's very much what the picture is here, is that out of obedience, we're going to obey God rather than man. Even if it takes us right into the, the heart of the wave of difficulty, because we know on the backside there's going to be joy knowing that we followed and obeyed God rather than men, a remarkable kind of joyful buoyancy. Is obedience our response in the face of resistance and persecution? In the face of threats, are we willing to face them in order to be obedient to God's word? And like so many times already, in the early church, their response was they preached Jesus. And so it's almost as if, you can imagine all the apostles, this group that could have been 70 plus, questioning them. And it's like they just looked right in their eyes in addition to saying we're going to obey God rather than men. They said this, look in verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. 
the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we share that, religious leaders, you and us, both Jewish, that God, you, you hung Jesus on a cross, God raised him up. You treated Jesus like a cursed man, and God raised him up as the Christ. You tried to put him away, but death couldn't hold him down. You treated him as a common thief, but God has proven him to be the prince, the leader and savior of his people. You treated him as a cursed man, but he is the Christ. And in this name, repentance and forgiveness is offered to God's people and to the world. And he says, we are witnesses to these things. We've seen them. The Holy Spirit is witness to these things. We have the Holy Spirit because we have obeyed God and we're submitted to his prince. So here's the implication. Just kind of picture this. This is a tense situation. Even if they had faith, this this is riddled with difficulty. But you can imagine the apostles just kind of staring at these religious leaders. And the implication of what they just said is something like this. You, religious elite, like moral mob, If you don't believe our testimony, you not only don't believe the voice of the Holy Spirit, you don't have the Holy Spirit. So this confrontation, it's like, hey, we've witnessed witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. You tried to kill him. God brought him back to life. You treated him as a cursed man, and we believe he's the Christ. We've witnessed these things. The Holy Spirit witnesses these things. And here's the implication. If you don't believe it, You not only haven't heard the Holy Spirit, you don't possess the Holy Spirit. And that's why they get so angry, incensed. That's the response. So angry. In fact, the only thing they can think about is killing these men. That's what you see next in verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. And so now we have this moment. Before I get there, the the interesting thing about this, there's a contrast here. I think this is helpful because it might address categories of people even in this room. Because there's some, early on in the book of Acts, you remember Peter's first sermon, he just gives this dynamite sermon, preaching Christ from the Old Testament. At the end of it, you remember what happened? The people respond, and the response is this, what should we do with these words? They're cut to the heart, they're convicted, and the response is, what should we do? His response was repent. Turn away from your sin, turn to God, repent and be baptized, be forgiven of your sins. The promise is for you and everyone who would believe, Right? Well, that response stands in contrast to what just happened. Bold preaching. Jesus is the Christ. You crushed him as a, as a criminal, but he was raised up as the Messiah, and he offers forgiveness of sin. And what's the response? Anger. And religion and moralism will turn away from the solution and salvation of Jesus. But those who are broken and realize they're desperate will always turn to Jesus and his grace and mercy, to find forgiveness in him. That's the difference. And you see that in the people who clamored to find healing. That they ran to Christ. They ran to Christ's people because they sensed their brokenness. But those who feel like they have it all together are always going to keep Jesus at a distance. And there's a contrast in those two categories of people. But Gamaliel, this interesting Pharisee religious leader, he steps in. He's kind of like this wise sage in the moment. And he steps in and basically says this, like, hey, You guys need to be careful what you're about to do with these guys. Because just like in history, there's been other guys who have come and gone, and they've gotten a following, they've taught, but they died, and things fizzled out. And so if it's from man, it's going to die. It's not going to succeed. But if it's from God, 
There's nothing you can do about it. In fact, if you, if you war against it, you'll find yourself even fighting against God. And this kind of compromise settles the moment to some degree. But here's just a quick comment on Gamaliel's counsel. This is not some proverb he utters. It's God's word. Because we see things in life, false religions, false teaching, and various other things that are of man that have staying power. For centuries even. There's a way ultimately that the work of man won't be sustained and prevail. And it's true in that sense. But in this life, certainly there's staying power for any number of falsehoods and false teaching. So just take his words at that. The second part of what he shared is very much true. That God's ways will always prevail. You can fight all you want, but God will win. And so this kind of moment of compromise, Kent Hughes said it this way, because of Gamaliel's rational entreaty, a compromise was reached and the apostles were let off easy. Easy, that is, if you think 39 lashes is easy. Because that's exactly what happens to them. The text is so brief about this, it's easy to kind of skip over it. But go to the end of chapter 5. So in the end of verse 39, it says, So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, you can kind of picture them all being brought in after leaving for a moment. They're brought back in. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them again not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And it's so brief, it's hard to feel the magnitude of what was going on right at this moment. So they flogged them. So realistically, what, what would have happened is there's a, there was a whip that was fashioned with a, the skin of a calf. And it was intended to inflict harm. So Paul talked about in his testimony of all this suffering, he said that I had this done to me five times, 39 lashes at the hands of religious leaders. So you can picture all the apostles lined up one by one. They get 39 lashes. There's some debate as to whether or not a third of them would have been across the chest and two-thirds on the back or if a third on each shoulder and then a third on the lower back. But here's historically what we know about this. Some people died from this beating. Not all. It was so severe, it was known to cause people to die. And so quite literally, you have this group of apostles beaten for the sake of Jesus because of their boldness for his gospel, and they leave quite literally bloodied with flesh missing from their back. But you don't sense that from the moment, right? You don't sense that because of this peculiar joy. Like they're, they're beaten, they're threatened, and what, what's their response? They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, for the name of Jesus. Luke's language is a little bit like this. They, they believed it was grace to be disgraced. They believed it was an honor to be dishonored for the name of Jesus. And maybe you've experienced that before. Like maybe you've taken a stand for Christ. Maybe you've spoken boldly for him and there's been some measure of repercussion. And you might know that peculiar joy that we haven't experienced in this way because we've never been beaten for the cause of Christ. But if you know a little bit of a twinge of that, you can amplify that. That's what these brothers were experiencing. This, this peculiar grace that they might get to be disgraced, an honor to be dishonored. And why? Like, why, why would this be a joy? Like, why would it be an honor? There's a couple reasons I give as we kind of close off. One is that suffering has a way of conforming us to the image of Jesus. 
like glad suffering actually conforms us to the image of Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, so the same character, Paul, used to be Saul. Christ saves him. He becomes the apostle Paul. He was a religious leader. And in Philippians 3, Paul does this. He talks about like whatever things were gained to me, all of my religious pedigree, all my experience as a Pharisee, those things I count as loss in light of what Jesus has done. He says, more than that, I count everything to be lost in view of the surpassing riches of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And he goes on to say this, and also that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. We stopped there, we're like, yes and amen. We know, might know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And there's a way in which in the face of difficulty, particularly trial as it relates to our faith, being persecuted for the name of Jesus, that it conforms us to the death of Christ. There's a way in which we get to reflect uniquely the suffering of Jesus when we suffer for him. So that is the source of joy because it pries our hands off this world, the things we want to hold on to, our reputation, our so-called prestige and position in society and our friendships and relationships, even at work, that it might be that Jesus becomes more precious to us than even those things. So we're conformed to Jesus in our glad suffering, and then also we live our lives for the life ahead and looking to the reward ahead. In Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, the way you could view that sermon from Jesus, like here's the way you look if you, if you have kingdom vision. It's the way you look at the world. If you're a, a Christ follower, Sermon on the Mount is geared toward this is what kingdom life looks like, and this is how you look at everything in the world through kingdom lenses, and this is part of what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice it's a future kingdom. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. You have a kingdom in heaven, you have a reward in heaven, and it'll never be snatched away. Peter said it's reserved in heaven for you, protected by the very power of God to be revealed in that final hour where it gets to be ours in full. A church family, as you, as you think about, I know it can feel like we're, we're very much removed from these characters in this historical book. But let me just kind of, if, just briefly kind of chart their path from this point forward. We're going to see some of it in the book of Acts, but not all of it. But if you just take the apostles, let me just rattle off for you the, the, the movement forward in suffering for these brothers in the early church. So the apostle John, he died a natural death in exile after being unsuccessfully boiled in oil for the name of Jesus. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Matthew was beheaded with a sword. James was beheaded in Jerusalem. James the lesser was thrown off a building, then beaten with clubs. Philip was hanged. Bartholomew was whipped and beaten until death. Andrew was crucified and preached at the top of his voice to his persecutors until he died. Thomas was run through with a spear. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded, as was Barnabas. And Luke, the author of this book, was hanged on an olive tree in Greece. This is an extremely short list of Christian history. And these men went to their grave because they wanted to preach about this life, this peculiar life found in Jesus Christ. But the one that they knew was a solution for mankind's problem. As we go to take communion this morning, 
some of what I want us to do is like not just simply remember Jesus for the benefit of our own salvation, although we certainly do that, but also remembering his suffering. There's a way in which the suffering of the Christian connects us in a, in a unique way to the suffering of our Savior. So as we think about his blood shed, his body pierced, there's a moment for us to just reflect on maybe the lack of willingness to suffer for Jesus' name. Maybe that's something you need to confess this morning as we have a time just to pause and be still before God. But although they were beaten and bruised, they remained bold, they remained bold for Jesus. And this story ends, this moment in Christian history ends with what? Off to preach we go. Day by day, house to house, in private, in public, they kept on preaching and teaching that Jesus was the Christ. It was an unstoppable urge for the people of God in the early church. And I pray more and more for us. It's an unstoppable urge for us to preach this life that we have in Jesus. Why don't you take a moment and just kind of bow your head and maybe take a moment of quiet. It's easy for us to avoid taking moments of silence, but I want to invite you to maybe consider just ways that you felt challenged and convicted even just from this, this brief story of the early church in Acts 5. It may be for some of us, we feel the conviction comes and we think about our unwillingness to be made uncomfortable or face resistance because we want to follow Jesus more fully than we are. If that's you, then my encouragement is to confess it. Just agree with God that it's wrong. That's what confession is and allow him to, as he promises, to forgive you and to, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And for some of us, it might be that we feel conviction and we think about the fact that we see Jesus um, sometimes as a threat to our, our life more than our path to life, a threat to our notoriety or social position or friendships or workplace or the status quo with our neighbors or our friends. Confess that. God is worthy of any measure of discomfort because Christ sacrificed it all for us.